Okay, so as promised, tonight I want to give not one, but two, I promise, shorter talks. Uh, And perhaps with ridiculous arrogance to begin to address some big, big questions in a little amount of time. One of the lovely things that was said to me a few months ago was that here at Aldridge Parish Church, people are picking up that what really matters about the Christian faith is the notion of a relationship with God having a relationship with the Most High God. But other people come to me and say, but hang on, John, if God is so special, so magnificent, so great, so awesome, how dare anybody think that it's possible to know a God who is so big? And if he, she, or it can be known, what language can we meaningfully use and sing in worship that might be able to speak about God with any real meaning. Okay then, firstly, Jews and Christians would agree that God cannot be known. It is impossible to know God at all, unless God chooses to disclose himself to us. Other than that, unless God makes himself known by whatever means, we are left in the dark. And all religious attempts to describe him are just fanciful notions. Most religions of the world are about humanity reaching up to try and find God. And Christianity is a faith, a religion if you like, in which God supremely initiates and reaches down to us. The essence of grace is not a single thing that we do for God, but for what God does for us in Jesus. So God has revealed himself, we believe, to humanity. And the word reveal means an unveiling, disclosing something previously hidden, frankly, unknowable. Give up trying to find God. You're wasting your time. Unless God wants to reveal himself to humanity. And even more importantly for you, that God wants you to know him personally. But does this mean we can ever fully understand God? One seminary teacher, a lot of people like me who worked in a vicar factory, said this, the more you know about God the more you realize you don't know about God. How can a finite mind understand and grasp the beauty, the magnificence and the splendor of the living God? And the longer I'm a Christian, the longer I'm a minister, the more I'm prepared to acknowledge that I'm incompetent. I think the thing about the kingdom of God is there is nothing in me and nothing in you that can do anything that will help God out. It's only when God partners with us that the kingdom will come and life will be different in the world. So how can a finite mind then expect to understand an infinite God? Well, Job, the happy guy in the Old Testament who had a really rough time said this, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? 
They are higher than the heavens. So what can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. So frankly, what can you know? Isaiah wrote this. Who has understood the mind of our creator? A beautiful song that we sometimes sing in worship. And the Apostle Paul wrote that other than God's revelation to us, God is not only, not only unknowable, but unapproachable, distant, to be feared, to be held at a distance, no chance of coming close. So this is what he writes. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. So let's just get our heads around this. We can never know God at all on our own. So I am so thankful that God has chosen to reveal himself in such a way that we can not only apprehend, at least in a measure, what he's like, but also, as people seem to sense here, we can have a relationship with him. And because he chooses from the beginning to have a relationship with us, it is inevitable that relationship requires some kind of communication. And if God is going to bother to communicate with human beings, then he's got to accommodate himself to words. Words that just approximately help us to understand what God is like. When we describe God as father... It's a metaphor for those of you who struggle with the idea of God as Father. It's just a picture of God's nature. There are many other ways of describing him, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But they're just approximate ways that God has accommodated to use that we can speak of him. Otherwise, our worship would be an utter silence. And I, as an extrovert, would struggle like fury with that. But the words point us beyond words to a fabulous God, an awesome God who may be known and loved and who adores you. So however in inadequate words are, the magnificent and otherwise unknowable God uses words or language as a vehicle for relating to us. Words such as those in Psalm 19. Rob wasn't trying to pad the service out. I wanted him uh, to get us into that psalm. And uh, it was read, you know, we read it together a little earlier. And basically, in that psalm, there's three sections. Firstly, David speaks of three kinds of God's revelation of himself or God's self-disclosure. In verses 1 to 6, God makes himself known through what theologians call natural revelation. In other words, creation. God does speak of himself in a measure through the things that he's created. Snag is, it's not enough to know him fully through that, but nonetheless he speaks through creation. Then verses 7 to 14, God unveils himself through what's called special revelation, special disclosure, key events, people, history, miracles, and obviously scripture, we believe. But in the last verse, we have a hint of the Messiah, just a hint of God's ultimate revelation. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you, our strength and our redeemer. God is a saving God, a God of grace. 
And it's great to be outside in the outdoors and just apprehend as you look on a very dark night something of the God who's beyond the stars. But it's not enough. It's great that God has given us scripture. It's great that there were miracles that have really revealed something of God's character. But it's not enough till he comes down and touches an individual and changes their lives. And it's my immense privilege. I'm just watching somebody at the moment who self-evidently would say they're not yet a Christian. But they're getting closer and closer and closer and closer to a relationship with the living God. Rob needs them to wait till the end of the Alpha course so that we can have the sort of prayer ministry with them. Not at all. They may not get that far. They're so close to coming to Jesus for themselves because there's a Redeemer, a Saviour, who comes close to us. And so it is that Christians want to say that this incarnation of God, God, if you like, putting on flesh, is uniquely and definitively fulfilled in Jesus. And so in saying that, I have to say that in terms of the big questions, I'm now making huge jumps to make this a relatively short talk. And so from Luke, the reading tonight, I want to start at the very end of the reading to verses 18 to 20. And this short talk is coming towards its close. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah or the Christ of God, as he puts it. Here is one of the biggest questions we can ever face in terms of knowing God through Jesus. The question, who is Jesus, was previously asked in chapter 8, verse 25, and chapter 9, verse 9, but no answer was given. Now Jesus raises the question. And there needs to come a point in time when even if we're attracted to Jesus, even if in church our buddies following Jesus makes us kind of warm up to the idea of doing so, there comes a time when you, on your own, as I have done, must make that personal response to Christ. This is the really big question. A Gallup poll at the time would have said that folks saw Jesus as the warm-up act, the forerunner of the Messiah, special, but not the special one. Some wondered, could Jesus be John the Baptist, who had recently been beheaded? Tricky, because that was his cousin. That's a fanciful, but sometimes people like to play with fanciful ideas and arguments rather than square up to the truth. I love sitting down with people who want to ask questions about the Christian faith. Nothing fulfills me more in ministry than to go for a pint with a bloke or sit down with a youngster and just deal with their questions. But there comes a time. There comes a time when I say, what are you going to do with this? Where's this going? Is it just a question? Or are you looking for him who is the answer? 
Others have suggested that the big character of Elijah might come back to forewarn of judgment to come. That comes right at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 4. But Jesus hits the button and he asks Peter, Peter, my friend, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. Christ or Messiah are virtually the same. And ideas of a Messiah coming were ten a penny in those days. The reason that people were so excited about Jesus began with the fact there were loads of people reckoning to be the Messiah. So there was confusion about and people would run after one and people would run after the other. Prospective Messiahs were ten a penny. A Messiah might make your dreams come true. They might fulfill your ideal, the very things for which your hearts long. But Peter was saying something different. He was saying the Messiah has come. And it's Jesus. You see, to believe the Messiah has come means we can no longer shape him to fit our dreams. Jesus is the only Messiah who's coming. And if you want to know God, you have to come through him. And if you don't like him, you're finished. Because he alone can be the saviour of the world. Instead of us projecting onto some would-be Messiah what we fancy God being, we're confronted with who God is in the person of Jesus. And you either accept him or you reject him. He shapes us to fit God's will. And even as Christians, even as born-again believers in Jesus, we play games with the living God. We sometimes attempt to fit God into our ways and the lifestyle we prefer. But the Messiah is a king, a king with a kingdom. And kings rule. And Jesus must. And the first major task of the Messiah is to stop us wasting our time looking for anyone else. Without fully understanding what he was saying, and he really didn't fully understand, Peter was saying of Jesus, God has a story which covers the beginning of life and time and goes beyond the end of time. And when words run out to capture what this God in his story is saying. Yet somehow, from beginning to end, Jesus is at the very heart of God's story. That's what the Christ, the anointed one, is all about. And oddly, you can't hardly believe this, that Jesus goes on in verse 21 to say, now keep quiet about me. Don't tell anybody. Now that is weird. That is seriously weird. What I think he means is that there is no point in telling people at that point about a Messiah who, in terms of verse 23, would be a Messiah who suffers, who faces rejection and death. Joe Average was not ready for that. They wanted a political ruler. The disciples were not ready for it. They didn't fully get who Jesus was. And frankly, neither are we ready to accept a Messiah who would suffer. In some Christian circles, Easter is celebrated, but without Good Friday. 
and the mighty risen Lord who is to come is preferred. We'd rather have the one who's to come in all his glory to the one who suffered and died and who came to call us to join him as his disciples. We'd rather have the great God of glory than the one who stoops down to earth and is broken upon a cross. Because if we embrace that God, then he calls us, his apprentices, to take up our cross and to follow him. So this talk ends with this, the really big question. Who tonight is this Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Really? All being well, we're going to look at a very short clip, which just some people talk about how they've discovered who Jesus really is. Jesus Christ, the most important person who ever lived. Born around 2,000 years ago, he claimed to be God. But was he a real person? I met someone the other day who said that they didn't believe in the historical existence of Jesus. I find that really quite difficult to understand why. I'm a scientist by background and therefore evidence is really important for me. Now, of course, I can't use a scientific experiment to test whether Jesus was alive 2,000 years ago, but I've got very strong history. I've got the testimony of the Gospels themselves, four different accounts about his life. I've got the evidence of those who wrote at the same time, but outside the Bible, pointing to his existence. I've got the testimony of those down the years who've passed down verbal stories about Jesus. And I spend my life these days as a theologian studying the authenticity of these accounts. Now, I can't prove it, but I have to say that the majority of evidence, the weight of evidence, is so great that I would find it really difficult not to believe that Jesus was a historical person. At Easter, we remember how he died and we celebrate his resurrection. Events that happened in a real place at a specific point in history whether there was a person in the first century who was crucified by Romans, uh, there is a whole host of historical evidence for that, more evidence for the existence of Jesus as a historical figure than there is for Julius Caesar, and no one is suggesting, I think, that Julius Caesar never existed. Was Jesus more than a prophet or a good teacher? But the thing that strikes me about Jesus is quite extraordinary teaching and claims about himself. He doesn't simply point us towards God. He says, I am the way to God. He doesn't simply uh, talk about the forgiveness of God. He pronounces God's forgiveness as God himself might do. And that for me poses a question. It says he is more than just a teacher or a prophet. What other explanations might there be? Let's assess the evidence. And at the end of the day, for me, there's only one natural explanation that Jesus was more than a teacher and a prophet. 
It was God himself walking the pages of history. The crucifixion is very, very rarely painted in early Christian art. And because it was seen as a very shameful death, and um, they recognised that's what happened to Jesus, but they didn't want to represent it. They wanted to represent him um, doing good things like, um, like miracles. Occasionally, when, when you do get a crucifixion in the early Christian art, Christ is always alive on the cross. He's always looking out. Because of the resurrection, he's, he's somebody who has defeated death. He has come through and he's still alive. He is not dead. He doesn't die. He goes on. More than 500 people saw Jesus alive again after his crucifixion. Today, a third of the world's population describe themselves as Christians, followers of Jesus. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead gives hope to Jesus' followers today. And so around 12 or 13, I began to explore uh, offering my life to Christ and to, to be a follower. It took me some time because I didn't quite know what to do. It seemed too simple. You know, you say a prayer of repentance and then suddenly you're a Christian. So it took me some time to believe that. And it was actually reading a piece of scripture which reminded me that uh, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. The main thing that convinced me to become a follower of Jesus was that I read the Bible for myself. I'd never done that before. And there were lots of parts of the Bible that I didn't understand. Still, some parts of the Bible that I don't understand. But the story of Jesus was so gripping, so compelling and so provocative that in the end I found myself asking the question, can this man's life, death and resurrection be explained in any other way than he is God? 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked his friends, who do you say I am? Today, he asks the same question, who do you say I am? So the observant amongst you will realise that I started at the wrong end of the Bible passage. But that was very deliberate. You see, hindsight really sometimes does help us to understand better what's going on. And in the feeding of the 5,000, we have an account which is recorded in all four Gospels, which is an indication of its importance to us. And it's undoubtedly a story that has shaped so much of the church's teaching, preaching and worship for 2,000 years. Jesus was clearly different to your average teacher or prophet. He drew crowds at this stage, and as the crowd grew, Jesus welcomed them and embraced them all. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God, about God's rule transforming things. And it says in the scripture, he healed many. But as this particular day moved on, there was a hungry crowd. Daylight was receding. They were in a wilderness or a remote place. And around them there was no Tesco Express, no Costa, it was shut. The Croft News had gone away for a week's holiday. And the disciples felt that the most sensible thing to do was to send the crowd home, back to Bethsaida or whichever village or part of Walsall they came from. I wonder tonight if you are a sensible disciple. Doesn't, don't Jesus and his friends need a break? 
sending them away, sending the crowds away, seems such an obvious thing to do and a right thing to do under the circumstances. But verse 13 tells us that Jesus had a different idea. You. You. You give them something to eat. What? They asked. Yep, there's a crowd here. You feed them. What use are five loaves and two fish for so many? And Jesus called for the bread and the fish to be brought to him. He then gave thanks for the meal, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples to give to the crowd. And amazingly, it says in all the versions, the entire multitude was fed with that small meal. People talk all kinds of nonsense on how to interpret it. There was generosity, so it was a story of generosity and a big picnic and all that kind of stuff. It says they ate and they were satisfied. Christ did not just meet the need around him. He lavished them with so much food. So much food. There were 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and of the fish left over. It's a picture, just a picture of grace. Grace does not come to us just to give us an itsy bitsy teeny bit. Grace comes to us to transform. It wants to flood our lives. And some of us instead want to send the crowd away. We think there's only enough grace for us. Some of us thinks there's only enough grace for a few of us. There is enough basketfuls of grace for every one of us. And some of us are having to come to terms with the fact, however long we've been Christians, we haven't even seen the bottom of the basket yet. We haven't yet touched the full depths of God's grace. And that is the beautiful journey of the Christian life. God will shatter the pint-sized expectations of what his followers can do if they will learn to trust him for more than they've already been given. And folks, our journey as a church is one that can never, ever be content with what God has done here already. It's great, but it's not the fullness of the 12 baskets full. Little is much when God is in it. And when Christians are willing to offer their lives sacrificially, relinquishing their hold on whatever God has given them in terms of time, money and talents, God will use these ordinary things to create baskets full. Christians must never believe that their resources are too little or that they are too little to serve God. Because time and again in the Gospels, God delights in taking the humble, the seemingly insignificant person and using him or her for his glory. I rejoice at being incompetent. I'm no longer ashamed of my incompetence. For I see it's God's chance to do something that when God, John Coyne, feels strong, 
gets in God's way. My bishop, when I was ordained, was a broad Lancastrian. And he used to come to a particular point in a set prayer in the Church of England that talks about us being sinners. And he always used to say, his name was Victor, Victor Witsy, always used to say, and I'm the chief of sinners. It's as if he'd got a measure of grace that as a fancy bishop in all his glory, he knew it meant not a jot. So in this way, Jesus fed the people through the agency of his disciples. You see, there was a crowd there. And what was happening was so much more than a big feed. Jesus was full of compassion, even when it was inconvenient. But this was more significant than feeding the needy. The disciples saw the challenge and Jesus revealed more of himself. It's noteworthy that Jesus fed the disciples through the likes of you and me. He could have simply snapped his fingers and caused everyone present to have a meal. But he didn't. Instead, in verse 16, he gave to his disciples to distribute to the people. And in this way, the disciples had to trust the Lord for everything that they distributed. They could only give as they received. Philip, Andrew and the rest were put in a position of total dependence upon the Lord for the supply. And God still uses people in the same way today. God has given us as a church a vision. And what God does with that vision is, having put it there, He gives it back to you and me. And he says, now go and feed the crowds. And if this incident looks back, and it does, it looks back and would be reminiscent for Jesus, for the disciples and for others, to feeding Israel as they escaped Egypt in the the wilderness. It looks back to the Passover when God provided miraculously for his people. It certainly looks forward to the time when Jesus would break bread at that Passover, which we call the Last Supper, and so institute the one rule, the one law in Christian worship. The one law is this. Not Matt Redman. Not 50-minute sermons, but when we break bread, we celebrate together the giving of God's only Christ as the saviour of the world. The church has always fed the poor, and rightly so, and our worship at communion should be a worship that sends us out to a world that is hungry, a world that's hungry to which we go with ministries of compassion to God's praise and glory. We're not having communion tonight, but compassion and communion belong together. But that's not the last word. This Jesus who fed the hungry is in the words of John 6, the bread of life, in whom alone all our hungers are satisfied. We all need the basic provision of food. And that is why we've been invited this last week to fast and to be generous to those who are starving in Africa. Our worship, our real worship, 
compels us to respond. But there's more. And the gospel of the kingdom reminds us that we cannot live on bread alone. Jesus, the bread of life, is alone equipped to deal with your deepest longings and mine. That's why we must give everyone we can the chance to be asked and to answer the question for themselves. A question deep down where it matters is this. Bread of life. Who do you say that I am?